Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Thank you everyone for joining us today at the Heritage Foundation. We are really glad to have you, but I must say having to host this event means that things are not going so well in Cambodia. And so for that, I'm a little bit sad. Um, I mean, we're looking right now at sham elections, banning of the opposition party, a completely crippled civil society. All of these terms describe the current state of Cambodia. Thankfully, this past week, we did receive some somewhat positive news that Kim Sokha was transferred from uh, prison and let out on bail, but only into house arrest. So I, I see this sort of as bittersweet news, not really all positive and not really all negative either. Um, but this was certainly not the news that we had hoped for. We had hoped that he would be fully released, and I think the U.S. government will continue to press for that. Um, if the Cambodian government thinks that this small so-called give in the realm of give and take is sufficient to reduce U.S. pressure on Cambodia, I think that they are sorely mistaken, or at least I hope that they're sorely mistaken. U.S. government policy toward Cambodia, I've been surprised actually at how consistent it has been over the past couple of months. I mean, when Kim Sokha was imprisoned, there was a very swift condemnation of his imprisonment that was then followed by yet another round of swift condemnations after the opposition was dissolved. And then we've seen earlier this year um, that it wasn't just the dissolution of the opposition party that the U.S. was critical of, but visa restrictions were instituted. And then now earlier this year, global Magnitsky designation was given to one Cambodian official, Hing Bun Hyang in June 2018. And obviously, after the elections, I think everyone predicted even before the new year that the elections would be neither free nor fair. And the U.S. government has, again, condemned those elections and has promised tighter restrictions on visas, all really positive and consistent steps. And I think none of these should be rolled back, even if Kim Sakai were to be released fully today. Um, the U.S., I believe, instead should maintain a pressure campaign on Cambodia until those political realities change. Um, right now, there's no space for opposing voices, little room for freedom of association, and a stifling environment for Cambodians to express their views. And this is unacceptable in light of the fact that uh, you know, many signatories to the Paris Peace Agreement back in 1991 committed to actually holding Cambodia accountable if there were democratic backslides and if there were human rights violations resurfacing. And I think we are seeing that today. 
Um, I have no doubt that our other panelists are going to cover in great depth a variety of solutions and give us um, food for thought on ways forward. I just wanted to offer a couple of additional thoughts myself on what the U.S. government should continue to do. First, the U.S. government should continue to identify individuals for targeted financial sanctions under both Global Magnitsky and Specially Designated Nationals List authorities. Specifically, Hun Sen should be targeted under these specific Treasury authorities. Second, the existing visa restrictions should be extended to family members, particularly those of Hun Sen. Third, um, the U.S. should sort of take the lead in both creating and convening an emergency meeting of a Cambodia contact group that's comprised of some, a select few of the original signatories to the Paris Peace Agreement. These could include not just the U.S., but Japan, Indonesia, Australia, the U.K., and France, to name a few. And then fourth, the U.S. should condition assistance to Cambodia based off of the health of the democracy. One potential example of this could be the proposed language in the 2019 state foreign ops and other related appropriations bill. Um, critically, I think the U.S. cannot just release pressure on Cambodia if Kem really is released. Because if we look at the history of how these different pressure mechanisms were put in place, they really ramped up after we saw the dissolution of the opposition party. And so the pressure that was put in place initially was in response to a broader um, rece recession in democratic freedoms within the country. Um, I'm skeptical of the effectiveness of targeting the Cambodian people writ large with broad trade-based type of punishments against Cambodia. I think the type of U.S. strategy that would be most effective going forward would be pursuing policies that prioritize holding individuals accountable who are directly responsible for undermining democracy, not harming the Cambodian people themselves, which is why I advocate for targeted financial measures. So hopefully the rest of our discussion will bear fruit on potential ways the U.S. can continue to maintain a consistent policy toward Cambodia. And I'm looking forward to hearing from our three other panelists who I'd like to briefly introduce now. Um, the first person I'd like to introduce is uh, Sofal Ear, who we are recognizing back uh, for, I believe, the second time to the Heritage Foundation. Sofal is a Cambodian-American political scientist and an expert in political economy, diplomacy, world affairs, and international development. Previously, he served in a number of roles, one as consultant for the Human Development Social Protection Team and for the Middle East and North Africa Human Development at the World Bank in Washington, D.C., he then previously served as assistant resident and representative in the Democratic Governance Unit and Capacity Development and Special Initiatives Unit of the United Nations Development Program in Timor-Leste from 2002 to 2003. And during these years, his work took him to a number of uh, different places, including the West Bank, Gaza, and Algeria for a number of social projects. Um, Sofal worked as a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Public Administration at the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University before becoming an assistant professor in the Department of National Security Affairs at the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. 
He Today, he serves as a tenured associate professor in the Department of Diplomacy and World Affairs at Occidental College in Los Angeles, California. And he's authored a couple of books, including the one that we featured when he was here before, uh, entitled Aid Dependence in Cambodia, How Foreign Assistance Undermines Democracy. Next, I'd like to introduce Dr. Morgan Besser, who is a lecturer with the Griffith Asia Institute uh, or Griffith, the Asia Institute, excuse me, at Griffith University and a recipient of a Australian Research Council Discovery Early Career Research Award. His most recent book is Behind the Facade, Elections Under Authoritarianism in Southeast Asia, and he is currently finishing a new book entitled The Quality of Authoritarianism in Southeast Asia. He's also regularly contributing to a variety of both academic and public um, outlets and news uh, outlets. Um, the third and final speaker is Brian Eiler. He was actually the inspiration for this program in many ways. He reached out earlier this year, and I, I'm grateful to him for that. He is the director of Stimson Southeast Asia Program. He's an expert on transboundary issues in the Mekong region and specializes in China's economic cooperation with Southeast Asia. He has spent more than 15 years living and working in China, and over the last 10 years, has conducted extensive research with stakeholders in the Mekong region, leading numerous study tours through China and mainland Southeast Asia. Prior to coming to Stimson, he served as the director of the IES Mekong Economic or uh, Kunming Center at the Yunnan University and as a consultant at the UNDP uh, Long Kong Kunming uh, or Mekong Economic Cooperation Program in Kunming, Yunnan Pro uh, Province. He holds an MA from the University of California, San Diego, and a BA from Bucknell University. He is also a co-founder of the influential website eastbysoutheast.com, and his first book, The Last Days of the Mighty Mekong, will be published uh, by Zed Books, coming, forthcoming in 2019. Thank you, and please join me in inviting our speakers. Thanks, uh, Olivia, for that introduction. And it's wonderful to be back here in this auditorium after a few years uh, in the uh, in academia. Um, so I uh, I have the pleasure of actually speaking about um, the uh, the context here, and um, I'll just uh, you know uh, since Olivia mentioned it, I was here for for my aid dependence book, uh, aid dependence in Cambodia have foreign assistance undermines democracy, which is really about how foreign aid can sometimes hurt um, democracy in countries like Cambodia by substitu substituting for taxation and by you know, lessening accountability. And the other book I've written since is uh, The Hungry Dragon, How China's Resource Quest is Reshaping the World. And it's, it's the elephant in the room. Even though today we're talking about elections, in the background is, of course, the influence of China and how China is impacting countries like Cambodia by essentially facilitating uh, that country's ability to uh, to not uh, abide by uh, by by democratic norms. Um, so, 43 years after Phnom Penh fell to the Khmer Rouge, and 1.7 million people died, including my own father, uh, my wife's father, and uh, so many others. And 25 years after uh, the United Nations uh, Transitional Authority in Cambodia was sent to uh, essentially uh, broker a peace and uh, hold elections in Cambodia, we have a situation in which. Uh, Cambodia's heroes, uh, ranging from uh, labor uh, leader Chia Vichia, who led the largest union in Cambodia 
uh, environmental activist Chud uh, Wuti and um, uh, political commentator Kem Lay have all uh, been killed. Um, uh, we're looking here at a picture from yesterday. Uh, Prime Minister Hun Sen at the World Economic Forum on ASEAN uh, had some words to share with the international community. Uh, and I think, I think they're very telling. Uh, I'll just quote and, and comment. Um, uh, he said, countries which are outside the region always slap our heads and tell us what to do. I raise this issue not as a message for any particular country, uh, but I would like to say that these Mekong countries are the political victims, so I request outsiders of the regions who don't know about the issues to let us solve our problems. Referring to Myanmar, as accused of genocide, but do you all understand about Myanmar? Do you, un do you know about Myanmar? They have to solve a lot of challenging issues in relation with security. The countries that do not know our countries, please leave us to solve our problems for ourselves. Now, 43 years ago, I'm sure a certain regime would have said, Cambodia is accused of genocide, but do you all understand about Cambodia? Do you know about Cambodia? We have to solve a lot of challenging issues in relation with security. The countries that do, know, do not know our countries, please leave us to solve our problems for ourselves. I, as I mentioned, of course, this, this seems to ignore the fact that China is overwhelmingly involved in Cambodia, and if we are to have a credible Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, Cambodia is ground zero. It is the place where at least half of Cambodia's public debt is held by China, 20% of Cambodia's coastline is controlled by China, and uh, Cambodia is a small country. If we can't do anything in Cambodia, then what can we do about Sri Lanka or any number of countries along China's string of pearls? Now, we know what the context is. Uh, former uh, Cambodian National Rescue Party uh, President Sam Rangzi is in exile. Uh, Kam Sokha was released after a year in jail, but again to house arrest uh, and under bail. Uh, Musa Kua, vice president of CNRP, is exiled. The uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs and uh, International Cooperation of the Kingdom of Cambodia has been busy writing white papers to tell the truth about its own narrative of what Cambodia's modern history seems to be. Uh, the National Democratic Institute, which fights hard to hold uh, countries and elections um, uh, accountable, uh, was expelled from Cambodia. Uh, Radio Free Asia uh, was shuttered. Uh, it still broadcasts via Facebook, but that is a very limited access given that many Cambodians do not have the Internet. Uh, the Cambodia Daily, the equivalent of the New York Times, uh, shuttered in Cambodia uh, after a uh, $6.3 million tax bill. This was its final edition, descent into outright, um, uh, I can't quite read it, dictatorship. <laughs> um, so uh, the, other po the other newspaper, main newspaper, which would be the equivalent of the Washington Post, really, uh, the Phnom Penh Post, was sold uh, to a, a Malaysian PR firm that has done work for the prime minister and uh, boasts about it on its website. Uh, then now, of course, it's under, uh, suddenly the Malaysian investor has left and it's under control of, of an individuals who appear to be friendly to the authorities. Um, the, uh, the, the 2013 election, I think, were a warning sign for, for the regime. It uh, uh, showed that the opposition, uh, Cambodian National Rescue Party, could obtain about 45% of the uh, popular vote and uh, in the 2017 commune elections, despite all manners of arrests and, and uh, uh, tricks played, it still got 40, 44% of the vote. So the decision then, I think, was very clearly to 
change the playing field altogether. And so in the last election, 2018, the dissolution of the Cambodian National Rescue Party led to 125 out of 125 seats controlled by the uh, Cambodian People's Party uh, with a reported turnout of some 80 plus percent of the voters. Of course, we don't know if that's the case because there were not independent observers, only observers from Romania who were working for in concert with the authorities. Um, on opening day of the National Assembly, only China sent a representative while Japan sent its ambassador. Now, those who refused to partake included the US, the EU, Canada, France, the UK, Germany, Australia, Sweden, and Bulgaria. I think this is a sign of, of displeasure at what is happening in Cambodia, and I think this should continue. Uh, Cambodia's opposition uh, leader, as you know, Kamtoka, was released but is under house arrest and is not allowed to speak to uh, any of his uh, uh, fellow party members, uh, which, of course, you know, has been dissolved. So they, can, they technically are illegal. Now, um, the uh, authorities are busy, and I'm sure you've seen the, the handouts they, they provided, but uh, this one is a 132-pager that uh, uh, the uh, Quick Reaction Unit of the Council of Ministers produced in which um, really it's, it's about the color revolution narrative that Cambodia seems to argue is what is happening there, that uh, the West has been trying to promote a color revolution in the country, and this is why this is bad for the regime, this is bad for democracy, and so on. I'll just note the uh, preamble to that report has a quote from the Prime Minister in which he says, real democracy in Cambodia has not been set back or fallen. Instead, it has been protected and strengthened in accordance with the principles of the rule of law, for the great benefit of the people and nation. Only fake democracy has been abolished. Um, irony defined, I would say. Um, so there we are at a situation at an impasse in which the uh, Cambodian authorities have, uh, have all the cards, but uh, I think there's still hope if action is taken before it's too late. Thank you very much. I'll uh, leave it to my next uh, panelist to take over. Thank you and uh, good morning. Um, I'm going to talk very uh, briefly about uh, the slide you see in front of you on the methodology of Hun Sen's crackdown and uh, the implications for the election. And I hope we can get to some uh, solutions in the Q&A about what to do uh, with recent events in Cambodia. Uh, a discernible obstacle to analysing those recent events is that periods between elections have always featured heightened repression anyway. Until very recently, the July 1997 coup represented the most manifest example of Hun Sen's unfettered willingness to use violence as an accompaniment to political power. The ensuing decades featured repression against a succession of opposition leaders, mainly in the form of false lawsuits pushed through a corrupt court system. The same period also featured a string of assassinations against the advocates of causes known to be antithetical to the maintenance of authoritarian rule. The very acts of repression recently seen in Cambodia were thus not abnormal by historical standards. What really distinguishes the crackdown from anything previously was the systematic nature of it, i.e. repression in the service of a new strategy. The goal of winning a one-party election required a crackdown unprecedented in scope and severity for Hun Sen's dictatorship. To comprehend recent events in Cambodia, especially their effect on the trajectory of authoritarian rule, it is necessary to understand the methodology of the crackdown. The main belligerents were a wide array of regime institutions 
and government ministries under Hun Sen's personal control. Using the government this way supported the ubiquitous claim that the real problem was the illegal behaviour of his opponents rather than his intolerance for opposition. Notably absent from this list were the armed forces and paramilitary forces. This suggests there was a coordinated attempt not to involve these agents, which would have raised profound questions about the legality of the crackdown. The main targets of the crackdown were those most incompatible with the further entrenchment of authoritarian rule, i.e. civil society groups, independent media organisations and political opponents. The scope and severity of Hun Sen's crackdown heralded significant changes to the 2018 national election. The historical norm has been that elections were competitive, whereby opposition parties viewed this institution as a pathway to power, but they occurred on an uneven playing field. The 1993 election, which was administered by the United Nations Transitional Authority in Cambodia, is conventionally considered to be the freest and fairest of modern times. This generous statement belies the violence used by the CPP and its supporters during the campaign period, which led to 176 deaths, 316 injuries and 67 abductions. The four subsequent elections were less violent, but persistent shortcomings in the terms of integrity were indicative of, Hun of how Hun Sen used this institution to maintain authoritarian rule. The unprecedented crackdown witnessed over the last few years nevertheless produced three unfamiliar election features, more phony competition, more citizen participation, and more biased validation. The dissolution of the CNRP created a schism with the competitive process that had always defined these flawed elections. This problem needed to be addressed in order to make the claim that the method for selecting political authority in Cambodia remained democratic. To create an artifice of competition, the basic strategy of Hun Sen's government was to supplant a two-party system open to minor parties with a one-party system requiring phony parties. Ahead of the election, the National Election Commission embraced this quantity over quality strategy by approving 19 opposition parties to run against the CPP. This included 13 brand new parties, which was far more than the three new parties in the 2013 election. In addition to the Cambodian Youth Party, which also filed a lawsuit to dissolve the CNRP, and the Khmer National Unity Party, whose leader was released just in time, from jail just in time to compete, some of the others were the Cambodian Light Party, Khmer Rise Party and Our Motherland Party. Given the prevalence of vote buying and voter intimidation by the ruling party, along with the general lack of organisation, resources and reputation by the, possessed by these opposition parties, it is unsurprising that they received so little of the popular vote. In a sign of the sham being perpetrated, there were actually more invalid votes at 8.4% than votes for Funsenpec, 5.8%, which was the best performing opposition party. This increased level of party participation was nevertheless sold by Hun Sen's government as a marker of electoral credibility. In a message aimed at national and international critics, it claimed that, and I quote, Political parties who had participated in this election have clearly seen that this electoral process was held freely, fairly and justly with utmost transparency." End quote. Another unfamiliar feature of the election was the emphasis placed on citizen participation. Across the four elections that occurred between 1998 and 2013, voter turnout declined from 93.7% to 68.4%. 
This gradual fall seemingly never bothered the CPP, which asserted its right to rule irrespective of how many citizens abstained from the ballot box. The dissolution of the CNRP, however, necessitated a desperate reprioritisation. Fearful that critics like Sam Rancy would use low turnout as a barometer for its legitimacy, Hansen's government insisted that citizens had to participate as part of their patriotic duty to protect, quote, multi-party democracy from being destroyed. Despite voting not being mandatory, arbitrary fines of nearly 5,000 US dollars were issued against individuals promoting the tardy clean finger campaign to boycott the election. Another tactic was for the Ministry of Education, Youth and Sport to give students across the country an extraordinary three days leave to vote in the election. The Ministry of Labor also issued a notice to all factory owners and company directors requiring them to grant their workers uh, to grant their workers the same conditional dividend. This was typically accompanied by the threat of their employment being terminated if they failed to comply. In the provinces, which has traditionally been a bastion of support for the CPP, party agents went door to door threatening to withhold development projects, material goods, and specialised services unless people voted in sufficient numbers. After the conclusion of the election, the National Election Commission proudly reported that 83% of registered voters had turned out. This rate of participation is 0.7% away from the average of uncompetitive elections around the world, 0.7. And the government claimed that the voter turnout rate of almost 83% does not only reflect the clear commitment of the Cambodian people, but also provides more than enough legitimacy for the government to be formed, and especially the legitimacy of Semdek Techno Hun Sen." End quote. This quest for legitimacy underpinned the last unfamiliar election feature, more biased validation. A traditional part of Cambodian elections has been their inspection by international observation groups such as the Asian Network for Free Elections, European Union, International Republican Institute, and the National Democratic Institute. Given that their previous recommendations for improving electoral integrity had been consistently ignored, along with the unprecedented crackdown that occurred, none of these organisations sent monitoring teams. To fill this void, Hansen's government cynically, but cleverly, deployed shadow or fake observation groups to validate the sham election. In addition to scores of far-right politicians from Europe, some of the notable groups to declare the election was free and, flat, free and fair included the centrist Asia-Pacific Democrats International, European Council on International Relations, International Conference of Asian Political Parties, Shanghai Cooperation Organisation, and the newly formed World Elections Monitors Organisation. After these fake observation groups gave the sham election a clean bill of health, Hansen's government used its control of the media to disseminate their phony assessments to citizens. The goal was to build a generalised perception amongst citizens about the alleged, allegedly high integrity of the election. This was ostensibly made easier by the fact that the Ministry of Posts and Telecommunications ordered internet service providers to block 17 news websites for the day before the polls opened and on voting day. The unlawful suppression mainly targeted independent sources of information, such as Khmer language services of the Voice of America, Voice of Democracy and Radio Free Asia. This produced an information vacuum that was predominantly filled by state-controlled or state-aligned media organisations. 
The abrupt focus on phony competition, citizen participation, and bias validation were instrumental to the sham perpetrated. The flagrant use of manipulation and misconduct means that the 2018 election now ranks alongside the 1976 election under the Khmer Rouge as the worst ever sanctioned by Cambodian leaders. The election was certainly the most flawed sanctioned by Hun Sen's government. Indifferent to, con to the condemnation of the election, especially from the European Union and the United States Department of State, Hun Sen was not finished. After the official results were announced, whereby the ruling party claimed 77.3% of the popular vote, the National Election Commission declared that it had won all 125 seats in Parliament. In addition to giving the CPP the supermajority required to continuously alter the Constitution in the years ahead, which will be important for political succession, this monopoly undoubtedly contributes to the aura of invincibility possessed by many dictatorships. Thank you. Thank you, Olivia, for the opportunity to come and, and speak with you all today to address the political situation in Cambodia. Um, specifically, I'm not going to talk about the elections, but rather the, the period that we are in now um, for Cambodia's economic and environmental future going forward. Um, I'm going to talk about the amazing ecological processes at work and that have always been at work in Cambodia that produce a robust uh, endowment of natural resources, fish, water, that feed into the livelihoods of all Cambodian people. And how this, um, this system, these processes right now are in a very vulnerable position going into the next five years because of the results of, of the election. Uh, and um, uh, I've entitled my presentation, Zero Hour for Cambodia's Mekong Future, uh, because the time is now to think smartly moving ahead to protect and conserve that natural resource base that feeds into uh, the Cambodian people's livelihoods. Um, and unfortunately, unfortunately, we are at zero hour because of their tremendous pressures for development in Cambodia. Um, Cambodia, among ASEAN countries, has the highest rates of electricity tariffs. Um, uh, in Australia, uh, Australians pay about 20 cents per kilowatt hour, but they're paying for all these conservation efforts and, and other uh, welfare benefits uh, that go into that. The same price is, is paid in Cambodians by Cambodians who can't afford to pay it. Um, and uh, so there are pressures to build dams, to build out uh, coal-fired plants uh, within the country. Um, and we're at a point where um, Cambodia is all in on China right now, relying on China to do much of that development. And if we're looking at development, the intersection of development and natural processes, China does not handle natural processes well at all, and the track record on this is very clear. Uh, the, the China builds projects without any respect for ecosystems, ecosystem services, um, and an impact of infrastructure on the environment. And Cambodia is in a very vulnerable position right now. Uh, because there is no opposition party, legitimate opposition party with a strong voice to drive the political discourse forward, uh, civil society and the media are very weakened. And currently, as uh, Hun Sen mentioned yesterday at the World Economic Forum, there's a strong disdain towards development partners, um, the traditional development partners that have been working on Cambodian development for a long time. Uh, so to get into this energy pressure, you can see through um, 2030, 
the, the need for energy development uh, capacity build out is, is very significant, uh, moving from about 6,000 um, uh, uh, megawatts of capacity all the way up to uh, almost 25,000 uh, 25, megawatts of capacity. And much of that is in the blue. Um, in the hydro sector, and this is what I'm most worried about because dams can wreck the, again, the robust ecosystem services at play in Cambodia. Um, this slide shows what we at the Simpson Center call the problem. Um, you can see Laos and Cambodia with the Mekong River running through it and Vietnam to the side. Um, and if you put these, if you imagine them together, uh, this is just way too much. Okay, too many dams being built in Laos, too many dams in Cambodia's inventory uh, for future build out that could be built in the wrong way to, again, wreck these, these ecosystem services. And, and too much coal um, feeding into Vietnam's coal mix that can um, increase pollution, uh, uh, cause uh, uh, unknown health risks. And then, you know, if we look at China and the position that China is in currently with um, trying to mitigate some of the, the excess coal effects, um, China's pouring billions of dollars into these efforts. Um, and uh, if the, the plans proceed, so if I can talk about the, the, the Mekong um, uh, map, the orange dots are unbuilt dams, dams within an inventory. The darker dots are dams that are built or are being built. Um, if all of this goes forward, uh, uh, many, including those at the Simpson Center, believe that the, the Indo-Chinese Peninsula could be uh, sitting on the point of ecological crisis that could drive other forms of food and water security crises. Um, comparing the, the two maps, um, or comparing Laos and Cambodia, you can see that the upstream portions of the Mekong uh, in Laos certainly have many more dams being built. And in Cambodia, Cambodia is slow out of the gates to build out its dams. In fact, in the Mekong Basin portion of Cambodia, only one hydropower dam has been built, and that's the Lower Saison II, a 400 megawatt dam um, that blocks now the confluence of the Saison and the Srepak rivers. Um, two of the three most important tributaries of the entire Mekong system. Uh, these tributaries start in Vietnam. Um, one, the Sekong goes through Laos. Uh, this is where that Lao Dam burst was about six weeks ago um, in, in southern Laos. And the other two are in Vietnam starting, and they run into Cambodia. And they flow down into the Mekong Delta, but they also flow into the Tonle Sap. And uh, it's the Tonle Sap that that one, um, we need to recognize is the most important natural resource for Cambodia, arguably the most important natural resource base for all of mainland Southeast Asia. And remembering that Cambodia is a bit slow out of the gates to build out this hydropower capacity, one of the reasons is, is that the Cambodian government recognizes the importance of the Tonle Sap and the resource base that it provides. And this is slowing the process of energy development down. But again, now that, that Cambodia is all in with China, with China as the major ODA donor, the major foreign direct investor, and many of those dams on that map that you see um, will, uh, will be built by China. There, there are MOUs signed by Chinese developers. This threatens the ecological integrity of this ecosystem, which I'm about to describe to you. Normally, the Tonle Sap flows out into the Mekong during the dry season. Um, but something happens during the monsoon season. Right now, we're at peak monsoon season. That doesn't happen in any part of the globe. So much water comes down through the Mekong system from Laos, from China, that when 
the, the water hits the floodplains at that central arrow there. And when the water hits Phnom Penh, the direction of the river draining out of the Tonle Sap reverses and sends water back up into that lake, expanding its footprint five times, 15 times uh, of the water that's normally there in the dry season flows in and causes this amazing expansion. So you can see the permanent lake in blue there, and then the darker color around it is the floodplain. And when this happens, fish and other uh, aquatic life go out in those floodplains and feed on the nutrients that are, that are there. And they become, there's this explosion of life. And that explosion of life results in the, the fresh uh, caught fish annual catch of 500,000 tons. It's the world's largest inland fishery. All of North America combined, all of our lakes and rivers combined, produce 450,000 tons of fish. This lake beats that, 500,000 tons of fresh caught fish. And when those uh, fish aren't um, fresh enough to be eaten, they are uh, preserved into a fish paste called prahok. And um, that fish paste then can, can then be saved and stored throughout the year and drawn on. And this Fish diet feeds into 70% of the protein needs of all Cambodian people. Um, and it's not just the natural process of the reversing, but it's important to think about the other areas that are feeding into the Tonle Sap. There are more rivers around the Tonle Sap um, that are sending water in, and then when the floods happen, the water goes out, and the fish go upstream, and they spawn, and they come back. So you can think about this as kind of a beating heart each year. There's a contraction and there's an expansion. The contraction brings the, good, the goods in, the fish, the sediment that provides a nutrient base, and then when it, um, when it expands, they go back out and spawn. And this needs to happen every year. And Cambodia sits at the heart of that system. Um, just to, to illustrate the difference, this is a fishing village along the Tonle Sap called Kampong Klieng. Um, this picture was taken in mid-April at the the peak of the, the dry season. And sitting at the same uh, spot on the porch of this home during the monsoon season, here's what happens. Okay, looking side by side, same picture, same spot. And these villages, over 100,000 people, survive on the natural resources coming out of that lake. And the resources go to market in Phnom Penh and all over the country and feed into this important diet. Now, to think about development moving forward, we can see those orange dots um, uh, around the lake. Um, these, uh, as well as six reservoirs, the R's there are, are uh, irrigation dams that, that kind of hinder the connectivity, the flow of water, sediment, and fish into that lake. Each of those dots will impact connectivity. And when I talk about connectivity, I mean ecological connectivity the flow of those things that produce that amazing natural resource explosion. And if the, the thinking about building out those dots um, is done in a way that is comparative to the way China builds dams, comparative to the way that Laos dams are being built currently, without a plan, without any thought in terms of environmental impacts, that 500,000 ton fish um, catch per year will be at risk. Um, so I want to think about what I would say the worst plan possible for going about building, building out these projects. First, let's look at the status quo. Um, Cambodia has about 10,000 kilometers of rivers. So that includes the Mekong mainstream and tributaries and the tributaries of those tributaries. When the Lower Saison II Dam was built, that knocked out the connectivity 
of two of the longest rivers in Cambodia, the Saison and the Srepok. So those are the, the second and the third bar there. You can see that that river went from blue to gray. All right, the connectivity of that river now is effectively dead. When you build a dam in the middle of the river, that connectivity dies. And with the other six reservoirs being built around the Tonle Sap, this is the status quo of connectivity. If you think about this as like a, a DJ's um, uh, a decibel chart or, or the, the, the volume chart, right? As more sound is put into it, the, the higher the bars go. And the idea is to get the bars to go as high as they can if you want to have maximum flow. Um, right now, this is the status quo. Let's think of kind of the worst possible development plan, building out the dams on tributaries that are the closest to the Tonle Sap, that would bring about the least amount of flow, uh, the least amount of, of heartbeat, if you will, to this Tonle Sap. What would Cambodia get out of it? Well, with this scenario, Cambodia would have 14 new dams, an extra 384 megawatts of capacity, not much. But the total connectivity loss of the Tonle Sap would equate to 61% loss of connectivity, all right? So 61% of that beating heart is now dead. The Lower Saison II took connectivity to 30% loss. And if the idea is to protect the resource base and maximize that heartbeat, not doing a very good job with this particular uh, scenario, and you're only gaining about 384 megawatts of capacity. A smarter plan, but also considerably risky, a way to think about building out that capacity, moving the country forward in development, lowering the price of electricity in the country to allow it to industrialize and allow the rural areas to electrify, would be to think about what's happening above the Lower Saison II dam and developing out those projects, if you will. Because if that dam cut off the connectivity, then everything above it won't have an impact on other forms of connectivity around the Tonle Sap. What would you get out of this type of scenario? 23 new dams, development of eastern um, uh, Cambodia, um, the, the mountainous regions there, 1,700 megawatts of capacity. So now you're kind of you know, cooking with gas, if you will, um, getting a lot more out of the system um, and potentially having zero impact on the connectivity of the Tonle Sap because the development is happening all upstream of that one big dam. The question is, is does this really impact the Tonle Sap? Studies would need to be done. Um, resettlement would be difficult, and Cambodia's track record with resettlement is quite poor. Um, who would invest in a transmission build-out to take this power into uh, uh, Phnom Penh? Um, I would like to promote a, another idea. Do all those dams need to be built? Are there other ways? Are there emerging opportunities with solar, wind, and other forms of energy generation that can help Cambodia rethink another design? So you could build less dams, have fewer impacts on the Tonle Sap. Um, and you can see in, in Cambodia is ripe for solar development. The darker the color, the more potential there is. Uh, wind, not as good, but in that portion of the country that I identified earlier, uh, has a robust endowment. And one way to think about this is maybe linking up southern Laos, eastern Cambodia, and sending power to markets where it's needed, particularly into Vietnam, to uh, Ho Chi Minh City, uh, where there is massive amount of power demand. And so this is an idea to protect the ecological integrity of the Tonle Sap, um, a regional approach that I think um, the governments of the region can get behind to meet um, energy demand and meet Cambodia's development um, needs. But again, we're at a, a kind of a vulnerable spot to be able to, 
to take such a plan forward um, because there is disdain for development partners, because we're at this point of political impasse within the country. But certainly what's needed is a basin-wide system-scale way of thinking about energy development that maximizes the trade-offs to how the Tonle Sap is impacted. I have some other recommendations here. I'm not going to go into them. Um, specifically, though, I think that Vietnam has an opportunity to engage with Cambodia to develop that area I showed earlier as a clean energy corridor. And if relations between Cambodia and the U.S. can come to a point where we can move forward on this, perhaps that zone that I identified and that way of ecological thinking, of sustainable thinking about protecting those resources is an opportunity for the U.S. with its new Indo-Pacific strategies that are coming out of the White House, the State Department, and Congress. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. I think that was really informative. I will forego my moderator's prerogative to ask a question so we can prioritize audience questions if we have any. Um, we have two folks uh, here who will provide microphones. Please wait for the microphone. And if you could identify yourself in your institution and keep it to a question, that would be awesome. Thanks. Any questions? If you could tell us a little bit about uh, Cambodia's relationship with their immediate neighbors, specifically Laos. I noticed you didn't have any recommendations with regard to Laos up here, and uh, curious about that. Sure, I can speak to it uh, quickly. Um, you know, Laos, again, is, is building out dams at an um, unfettered pace, and there's no plan to it. There's no broader blueprint to how that happens. Uh, Cambodia is in a position, uh, with or without development partners, to negotiate smartly with Laos uh, on, on minimizing the impacts of those upstream dams, because certainly those upstream dams and China's upstream dams are doing some of the worst impacts to the Tonle Sap. And if those are built out in the wrong places, then there could be an impact. Cambodia needs power. Cambodia, uh, uh, Hun Sen, has signed MOUs with Laos to purchase more power. But there's, again, no blueprint on how to do that. So. If Laos says, oh, we've got to supply more power to, to Cambodia, let's build a dam here, boom, that could just spell the, the death knell for, for the Tonle Sap. Um, there needs to be some type of strategy there. And I think to answer your question on uh, Cambodia's relationship with other countries, just a couple of thoughts. One, I think it's been really surprising how silent ASEAN has been, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, when it comes to the backsliding on democracy in Cambodia. I mean, obviously, ASEAN does have its non-interference uh, in internal affairs policy, but the situation in Cambodia is so severe at this point that I think it's sort of along the same lines as the, um, you know, potential genocide going on in Burma merits some comments from ASEAN partners. And beyond that, um, specifically with Cambodia, I think especially in the lead up to the elections, it was really surprising how little we heard out of Japan, which is a major aid donor um, and investor in Cambodia. And I think, you know, Japan is sort of a, a leader on free economic principles and otherwise really should have been more outspoken in the lead up to elections than, than it was. And obviously China frequently doesn't make any any sort of comments regardless of its investment levels in individual countries. And so I think those two relationships with its Northeast Asian neighbors continue to be strong in spite of the democratic backsliding. 
uh, I would just add that uh, Japan provided the ballot boxes for this last election. Uh, and um, I think the competition with China makes Japan much more leery of, of uh, speaking out on Cambodia. You want to keep doors open. Vietnam congratulated uh, the, the uh, authorities in Phnom Penh after the election. Uh, obviously, when you're neighbors and sharing a border, you don't want to close off doors and burn bridges. Um, uh, with respect to Laos, I think there, were, there was some military incident uh, quickly uh, suppressed. Um, the, uh, the, the, the dam burst uh, was completely, apparently, um, uh, muzzled in terms of media coverage in Laos. Uh, and then the, the, uh, the damage on Cambodia obviously couldn't, couldn't be completely um, uh, silenced. But uh, the New York Times has done some pieces on, 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 on that burst, which, of course, was catastrophic because – you know, I think if it had been a uh, Chinese-built dam, uh, the media would be all over it. But it was a South Korean one, so I think it was less of a, uh, an outrage, unfortunately. Uh, thank you to the panel for giving your presentation. This is an area with which I'm less familiar, so I, I appreciate everything uh, you said. My name is Arash Shatra. I'm a, I work at, um, uh, as an intern at the Cybersecurity and Homeland Security here at Heritage. Um, my question is uh, regarding your statement about how the Prime Minister said, you know, the West doesn't understand this region, therefore they should stay out. Um, has he ever articulated why he believes China understands Cambodia so well and why they should be so involved? And are there any historical or cultural reasons, aside from economics and politics, um, that might warrant China being involved or maybe why they shouldn't be involved? Right. Um, <clears throat> well, there is a history, of course, to China's involvement in Cambodia, uh, especially during the Khmer Rouge period, where the Chinese were brothers in arms with the, uh, the, with the Khmer Rouge. So um, that's a bit of history that goes uh, under the carpet, I suppose, when it comes to uh, China's current involvement. Uh, I think the, uh, the evolution of that modern relationship has been um, more of a um, uh, relationship based on necessity because after 1997 when the coup d'etat happened, uh, China became essentially the, uh, well, was re replaced Taiwan. Uh, Hun Sen kicked out the Taiwan representative's office and then um, adopted the one China policy. And uh, from there onwards, you can see that relationship flourishing in terms of um, all kinds of uh, wonderful things on both sides in terms of things that each side wanted. So uh, aid without strings attached, which, of course, is never the case, but it's, it appears, at least on the surface, that China isn't saying, well, you're going to have all these conditions on the aid. It's privately done. Um, on the other hand, uh, China wanted Cambodia's um, uh, help on the South China Sea, and in 2012, Cambodia did a fantastic job for China in terms of um, – blocking a uh, joint communique to be issued in uh, um, July of 2012 uh, as, as, as chair of ASEAN. Cambodia made sure of that. Then in November, it even went further by saying that uh, Southeast Asian leaders didn't want to internationalize the South China Sea, and that was language straight out of China's uh, uh, foreign ministry. So uh, as a um, essentially as, as a spokesperson for China, uh, Cambodia has, has done a a great job, and China appreciates, I'm sure, that, that uh, help. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> My name is Rasi Sai. I'm uh, just a Cambodian-American and also from the Cambodian Buddhist Society. Uh, I have a question uh, to Mr. Eiler uh, regarding the Tonle Sap 
and the dams, you know, is very interesting because uh, Tonle Sap are the soul of uh, the Cambodian hope and thing from the past century to now. And I heard you said that uh, there's zero time to to do that. But I know zero means zero. But what can we as a Cambodian American do to sort of reverse that and to, uh, you know, like stop those damned construction? And how, where is the time frame of that building thing that, to make us aware of it so that we can do something about it? Thank you. Sure. That's a great question. Um, I, I believe that there is a, a gap in understanding of how the Mekong ecology feeds into livelihoods um, and supports livelihoods at, at the top levels uh, of, um, of government um, all throughout the Mekong as well as um, in China, particularly, particularly in China, um, uh, the country that's building the most dams right now. Um, in the Mekong region. Um, and uh, so one thing we can do is help fill that gap to promote the robust um, qualities of the Mekong system, how many fish are coming out of, of, this, uh, of, of that lake and of, of the river itself, and the, the millions of people that survive on this. And to talk about things like um, how Cambodian culture is connected to the water uh, and to fish, right? There's a saying, where there are fish, there are people, right, in, in Cambodian, um, in, in Khmer. Um, but then also what, um, what others can do, what, what, what Cambodian Americans can do and what Americans can, can do and other, other uh, um, let's say, investors can help shift Cambodia toward a newer energy future that relies less on hydropower uh, and brings in to develop those robust solar capacities. You know, there are um, economic land concessions in Cambodia that have been part of the, the media criticism of, of this government for a long time. They're just laying fallow right now because the price of commodities globally are so low and in the region. Agriculture just, just doesn't really pay off. Um, and uh, build scale solar farms. Tie that into Phnom Penh's uh, power, power needs. And... Um, this is a way to, again, help the country move forward and drop that price of electricity. And Cambodian Americans can invest in that. I saw a question from Hi, thanks. I'm John McTafeld. I actually uh, support Brian at the Stimson Center, but uh, we'll reserve my question for the uh, other two gentlemen up here. Um, in the aftermath of the election, do you have any sense of the status of fissures within the CPP? Um, whether or not there's been a true consolidation kind of under Hun Sen and a preparation for a handover uh, to his son, or whether there are still kind of conflicts within the party that could potentially emerge over time. Thank you. Do you want to start? Sure. Um, I mean, the research I've conducted sort of suggested that Hun Sen consolidated or personalized power around 2005. And the existing research on leaders who consolidate power in that way suggests that they have full authority when it comes to deciding when political succession occurs and who succession goes to. Um, so despite there being factions that may have a preferred candidate, they cannot credibly threaten Hun Sen in a way that might change his mind about the process uh, of succession. Now, Hun Sen routinely says that He's going to give up power and then routinely changes his mind and 
and so forth, and that's been a pretty common narrative for a while now. Um, but, I mean, the evidence suggests that it's one of his sons, probably Hun Bennett, uh, since he seems to be in the best position, I guess, to do so. Um, the problem with succession in all these regimes is that if there's ever going to be a, a crack in the, in the shell, it's around succession because somebody has to lose out um, and some faction has to lose out under the new regime or under the new leader. Um, so whether succession occurs anytime soon, I mean, a year ago I said it would occur in sort of 18 months. So, I mean, sort of six months to a year after the election. Um, but, you know, Hunting could just say that I'm wrong and I'm sure he will. Um, I think it will occur with the, sort of within five years. Um, I think it will be Hun Menet and I think it will be a problem in terms of the regime consolidating around a new leader because there's so many vested interests in Hun Sen and the patronage that he sort of provides. Um, so I think there's, you know, there's trouble beneath the water sort of ahead for Hun Sen's regime. Could I just um, like do a follow-up on that? Do you think that that period of transition will be a vulnerable enough point where there could be a return to democracy if there was a significant enough organization of opposing forces? I mean, political succession under dictatorship is basically the Achilles heel of all dictatorships. So if anything's ever going to break down, this is when it's going to happen. The difference in Cambodia is the lack of legal political opposition. Um, and if you do have a legal political opposition, what you can sometimes see is that they form a pact with sympathetic members of the, the military, for example, and they usher in a, a new sort of regime change that way. Uh, I don't see the military or factions within the military sort of having a change of heart about where their loyalties lie. Uh, so I don't expect uh, a sort of democratic future coming from political succession uh, at all. Um, I'll just add that uh, the, uh, uh, the other side of this, of course, is that Hun San has said that he wants to beat the world record in terms of uh, uh, holding power. I think Cameroon's leader had 43 years. He wants to go for 44. Uh, but that, these are the things I think he says when he, when he uh, feels that uh, uh, the media or critics are saying, well, you know, you've been around for too long. Um, Lee, you talked about uh, this issue of, uh, of the military at some point, not, not being fully engaged in this until there was a shift. But, but I would say that right after this election, 2018, um, seems to have moved uh, several uh, senior generals into the National Assembly, uh, which triggered the next day a request by uh, Hun Sen to then uh, move uh, his son and others into those positions. So uh, if there's any doubt about the consolidation of, of the military side, it seems to have been uh, completed with, uh, with the results of this election, which, um, you know, if there was any doubt that, none, uh, that not all the seats would be taken, now they're all taken and they're all under the control of the CPP. Um, and with respect to the, the presence of an opposition during, during transition, during the handover, um, that, of course, was also neutralized after the election when uh, he held, a, um, a, I think, a meal with the heads of 15 uh, parties that ran against the CPP and, and made them all ministers uh, in the high consultative body that he created. 
so that he could essentially uh, bring them into the fold and, and make sure that they wouldn't present any kind of uh, opposition to his rule. A final point on that. Um, you know, I think that taking further on in the future, whether it's 18 months from now or, or 10 years from now, um, do we see after a transition of power, uh, Hun Sen living out the rest of his days in Cambodia happily ever after? Most likely not uh, under any scenario. So um, someone's going to have to step in and provide an exit ramp and an exit strategy slash golden parachute, um, even, even looking at Sihanouk um, with his various um, uh, mansions around the world, China providing refuge uh, for him throughout his political career. Um, is it going to be China? Is it going to be another uh, partner out there that can uh, think in a way that perhaps will make that offer and allow the country to move forward in a different direction? So I think we just have a little bit more time. Why don't we do a round of questions as the final bit, and so we can get a few. So here, and I think I saw here, and, and maybe back there. Uh, Mitsuo Nakai is my name, Heritage Foundation. Uh, two questions. Um, I wonder how much of uh, influence that the China is posing domestically. And number two, why did Japan, did they with, withdraw uh, away from Cambodia? Is that what you said? Or, or uh, was there a conflict uh, with the uh, internal politics? No, they provided Japan. the ballot boxes. They, they provided the ballot boxes for the election. I think maybe take that question. Yes, my name is Kaimara Sok. I'm from uh, Voice of America Khmer Service. Thank you for the presentation today. Um, it seems to me that the untaxed legacy is vanished right now in terms of human rights, democracy, and... But what happened if the Cambodian government, the new government specifically, will be doing a good job from today? Will that new government be legitimized or not? So we'll take one over there and then the one in the back, and those will be the last questions. Yeah. My name is uh, Pumra Hong. Um, yeah, like this second gentleman over there brought up about the 1997 coup d'etat. So the, I think that the democracy is a dead by that time. So 1979 and 97, they're the same people that consolidated power. And I don't call the democracy in Cambodia. And uh, the Japanese uh, planned the 1998 that um, they organized the election. I think they already failed. So I don't know this time that Japanese uh, try again. So... After 1997, that uh, Hun Sen see the world is weak, so he take the world, and the world is not uh, doing any big reaction all of that, so he keep moving all of that. And also, United States that invest uh, less uh, resources to Cambodia, and then want a bigger claim it won't work. So why China that uh, keep um, moving ahead with the plan or the Chinese uh, bound with Cambodia? Thank you. Uh, Tom Lum, Congressional Research Service. Um, when Cambodians vote for the opposition, um, and maybe when the younger generation votes for the opposition, are they voting for ideas and policies, or are they voting for leaders? So, are they attracted to Sam Rancy or Kem Sokar or 
or the the leader is not as important as just the ideas. You want to maybe go down the line and just lay your mantle? Uh, okay, final question. <laughs> My name is Richie Paul, Cambodian American. I came here in 1975 and lived here since. Um, the Cambodia's problem is not only Cambodian. It is the Vietnamese infiltration and later on invasion and occupation of Cambodia. And they never left. And now it's back to square one. And they take all the seat in the name of the CPP. And their master plan is convert Cambodia, Laos, into part of Indochina. Do you have a question? Yes. The question is, the West, who promoted the Paris Agreement, has to go back. And then what can they do now? Because apparently um, the German government and the Japanese congratulated Hun Sen, and now... Will the U.S. government accept his new government like the rest of the EU will or not? And what are we going to do about the Paris Agreement and the Vietnamese uh, uh, politics in Cambodia? Thank you. Sure. Um, the United States, deep in the United States action on, um, I would say, development um, and political, bilateral, um, the bilateral relationship needs a lot more from the Hun Sen government to take it forward. Uh, and uh, and I don't think that's going to be coming anytime soon. Um, I think that the, the U.S. could offer some, um, some heavier sticks and some potentially interesting carrots um, that I've kind of already – uh, highlighted during this this panel, um, but it would take a lot to to uh, for for I think um, something meaningful to happen there. Uh, and even if Cambodia came on the agenda of say the White House or the State Department in a in a more in a deeper way, Congress is going to step in and, and prevent um, any action on that without some type of, of negotiation. Um, question on Vietnam: I mean, Really, does Vietnam still hold sway over Cambodia like it used to, with China as the biggest elephant in the room? Just something to throw out there. Um, there's a fair few questions in there. I'll just try to answer a few of them, though. Um, I mean, I'm fairly cynical about the, the role of the Paris Agreement or a new Paris Agreement uh, being forged uh, in Cambodia, given that the status of Cambodia vis-a-vis -vis outside international powers is fundamentally different now than it was uh, in the early 1990s. And I think China would uh, be up for a Paris-style agreement um, about the future of democracy and, and stability in, in Cambodia. Um, so I think the, the idea of going through some sort of international agreement I don't think has much traction. Um, to the gentleman's question about... Uh, the 1997 coup and, and democracy uh, in Cambodia. I mean, I'm probably a bit different to most people in that I don't think democracy has been in Cambodia uh, really ever. Um, like a minimal definition of democracy is a system in which political parties lose elections. And the one election that the CPP lost, they didn't give up power in 1993. 
and they haven't lost an election since. Um, so I've always been of the view that it's an authoritarian regime, and what's happened over the past couple of years is just the further entrenchment of authoritarian rule. It's just a harsher version um, rather than sort of a backslide from, from democracy that we're seeing uh, in other countries around the world. So I think I'll leave it there. Yeah. Uh, well, and I, and I would follow up with the, uh, the idea that certainly um, Cambodian democracy was, was never perfect, and we've seen that throughout uh, this morning, uh, but that uh, there is still something to be salvaged of, of, of what was created in 1993, uh, and, um, and that, uh, you know, don't let the, uh, uh, the perfect be enemy of the good. Um, so uh, Mr. Mitsuo's question about the influence of China, how, how, what is it in terms of uh, what China is doing? Is it really influencing Cambodia's internal domestic politics? It's, it's hard to say. It's not as if China is saying, you, you best be uh, authoritarian like us. The, the problem is that China underwrites the uh, sort of has, has a blank check on, on what Cambodia uh, does. And so it, it's, it's as if you have a backer in terms of your willingness to then do things that uh, China would then say, you know, we, we have your back. Now, in, in 2013, after the outcome of the election that was very close with uh, 44, 45 percent of the vote going to the uh, Cambodian National Rescue Party, it's alleged that uh, Prime Minister Hun Sen met with uh, the uh, Chinese ambassador who then said, uh, well, we don't actually, we don't necessarily support you. We, we support whoever supports us, uh, supports China's interests. And that might have been a message that said to, to Hun Sen that uh, actually, if you lose, China will go with whoever wins. And so he had to make sure that in 2018 he would win. Um, in terms of um, untaxed legacy, it's, it's, you know, it's something that uh, Prime Minister Hun Sen occasionally riffs about. He says it's a, it's a ghost. Um, and I think that's what that's that's what um, uh, also I, uh, you know observers have said is happening or has happened to untag, uh, to to the Paris Peace Accord in terms of of uh, its value. Now uh, it's impossible to imagine that that um, that the full reconvening of the of the participants would would happen. But perhaps what Olivia was talking about a, a smaller segment. Uh, would enable at least some discussion over um, Cambodia's sort of backsliding uh, in the last 25 years. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think uh, Thomas, your question about are Cambodians, uh, young Cambodians voting for ideas and policy versus uh, voting for leaders, um, it's hard to say. Young Cambodians in 2013 uh, clearly voted for change when they saw that Essentially, it was possible to, well, first of all, to, 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 to see the return of, of Sam Ramsey to Cambodia not covered by any of the television stations uh, and then to, to be able to go on Facebook and to see a live stream of that. They realized that, you know, all, all these official media outlets were not giving them what, what was really happening in the streets. Uh, and so they, uh, they certainly supported uh, change in that case. In 2018, uh, it would be hard to imagine that anyone wanted to... Uh, well, those who invalidated their ballots were saying, you know, they don't like any of the choices, but those who essentially um, were uh, compliant due to uh, all of the pressure put on them uh, ended up obviously having to vote for, uh, I think, the CPP. Um, so I'll leave it at that, but uh, it's good to see you in the flesh, Thomas, mm -hmm. after so many years. 
Yeah, and if I could just um, answer those last two questions on Tom's question about the youth voters. After 2013, there was some election observers in Cambodia who noted that perhaps the difference in how the youth is voting versus the traditional Cambodians who had been voting is that um, many of the youth were not around during the Khmer Rouge era. And so a lot of the same types of lines that were being sold to older Cambodians who were around during that time no longer had any appeal and they didn't have that sort of historical reference point of where the role that Hun Sen played during the Khmer Rouge era. And so there was a disconnect in that sense. And so I think there are different things that are motivating young Cambodians. And it would, I think this is one of the drawbacks from not having electoral observers this time around was that it's difficult for folks in the West to actually have a pulse on what motivated people's people's voting tendencies apart from just fear and feeling that they had to go to the polls this time around um, based off of what happened in advance. And then um, just really quickly on the Paris Peace Agreement, I did mention earlier that I think it would be wise to reconvene some sort of contact group that could reevaluate sort of where are we at on Cambodia, what things went wrong, um, and and where do we go from here? Because I think right now we're all sitting here saying, wow, we just heard you know a bunch of speeches from everyone on even various subjects that really make the future of Cambodia look quite bleak. Um, but I think that all of these different analysis that we got also should hopefully provide some fodder and thought for where do we go from here and, and what type of policy solutions can we institute to help get Cambodia on the right path, regardless of whether or not we agree about whether it was a democracy before or not. So thank you, everyone, for coming to join us. Please uh, join me in thanking all of our speakers. Um, I want to say that was